We're going to dive into chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. We kicked off and introduced our series on the rise of a king last week. Uh, This series in the book of 1 Samuel is probably going to take about 28 weeks. We'll take us into May of next year. We'll take a break for Christmas, a break for Easter. But this story of the rise of a king, we're going to read about how the floundering nation of Israel needs a leader, needs a leader to unite the people, to lead them into battle, to turn their hearts back to the one true God. And in 1 Samuel, we're going to see the rise and fall of several key figures. We talked last week about Samuel and Saul and David. None of them ultimately are able to fulfill the desires of the people and restore God's kingdom. But through the ups and downs of the nation, it serves to remind us, to remind them that God himself is the only true king of his people, the true king of his people, and indeed all the earth is. 1 Samuel 2.2 says, there is none holy like the Lord, amen, for there is none besides you, there is no rock like our God. And so this morning, we're going to read chapter 1, if you're using one of the blue hardback Bibles, it's page 225. Or it's at the beginning of your purple scripture journals there, if you are using those to take notes. And in this uh, first chapter, we read about the birth of the prophet Samuel, essentially his origin story. Everyone loves a good origin story. Probably one of my favorites growing up was the origin story of of Batman, right? Grows up the the wealthy uh, son of, of a famous, powerful family in the city. Tragically, he watches his parents murdered in front of him. He then, for some reason, has this strange fear of bats he has to overcome. But he overcomes that, and then he seeks revenge using his superpowers. You say, wait a minute, Batman doesn't have superpowers. Yes, he does. He has the superpower of of ingenuity and courage and, of course, money, right? And so using those superpowers, he takes vengeance on the city, battles evil, and, and that's his background. We essentially this morning read the background, the origin story of Samuel, and as with any good origin story, it foreshadows his life, and we can tell right from the beginning, this this guy is going to be special. He's born to a faithful woman of God. He's conceived by a divine act. He's born into a depraved period of Israel's history. Then he's raised away from his family in the temple of God, which itself is plagued by worthless leaders. But out of that, he's going to rise to become a powerful vessel for God. He's going to be a faithful prophet who will speak for God, a righteous judge that will lead the people with justice, a courageous kingmaker who will anoint the first kings of Israel. But all of this begins with his mother. We're going to meet this morning the central character of chapter 1 is Hannah, Samuel's mother. And we're going to read this morning and hear about what is deep, deep grief and pain that she experiences, but in the midst of that, powerful and profound faith. So let me pray, and then we'll read this morning. I'm going to just read in small chunks and and kind of unpack as we go. I hope you have a Bible or, or a phone where you can follow along. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is honest and real and raw. We thank you that this morning we meet a woman of God in the midst of her deep pain a place that some of us find ourselves in this morning. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and speak to us and teach us and encourage us and strengthen us and ultimately point us to Christ, who is our only hope, our only source of hope in the midst of grief, our only source of faith in the midst of a hard world. So guide our time now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a certain man of Ramoth... Ramathame Sophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. 
The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penaniah. And Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from a city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Now let me stop there for now, just kind of introduction, and let's, let's review these characters. Elkanah was an Israelite. So we're told that he lived in the land of Ephraim in the hill country. He's a God-fearing Israelite. He would year by year travel to Shiloh. That was the location of the tabernacle of the Ark of the Covenant at that point in history. And he would offer sacrifices of worship to atone for his sins to worship the God of Israel. Elkanah had two wives. It's likely that Hannah was his first wife. She's listed first, his first devotion. But Hannah was barren had not given the family any children. And perhaps because of this, Elkanah married a second wife who had multiple sons and, and daughters. Now just to unpack this for a minute, we, we read in the creation account in Genesis, God lays out his design for marriage to be the joining together of one man and one woman. Yet in the culture of the day, it was common for prominent men to have multiple wives. And, and some of the Israelite men had adopted this practice. Sometimes it was practiced by the wealthy, wealthy and powerful just to sort of demonstrate their prominence. Other times it was for more utilitarian reasons, to produce heirs. And we read in the Old Testament how several important figures had more than one wife, but the Bible never encourages this practice, never condones the practice, and it almost always brings trouble, as we find out it will in this story. Of course, we get to the New Testament. The New Testament affirms the creation design, makes it clear that a godly marriage is one man and one woman joining together in lifelong covenant. Now, as we'll soon see, as we pick back up in verse 4, Hannah having no children is no, no small thing. Both personally, socially, and religiously, it was a tragedy. So read again with me, if you would, picking up in verse 4. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penaniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not worth more to you than ten sons? We'll answer that question in a minute, whether Elkanah is worth more than ten sons. So they're at the tabernacle. Elkanah has offered his sacrifices, and, and, and likely what's being described here is, is what's called a peace offering or a fellowship offering. And, and with a peace offering, unlike a, a burnt offering for sin, the, the worshiper would get to partake of the meat. And so the idea was that some of the meat would be burned up on the altar for God to quote-unquote eat, and some, the worshiper and his family, would share. It was an opportunity to fellowship and express peace with God. And so he would give some of this to each of his wives. Now, Penaniah had, had children, and yet Hannah would get twice as much as her. Why is that? Well, we're told in the word that Elkanah loved Hannah deeply and he, he favored her. Now, as you can imagine, for Penaniah, this really got under her skin. The, the fact that she only got half as much and had triple as many people to feed just, just proved, just kind of threw it in her face that, that Hannah was Elkanah's 
true love. And she was overcome by jealousy. And so we read in verse 6 that she would take it out on Hannah. She considered Hannah her rival, and she was ruthless. She'd provoke her and tease her. She'd make fun of her and irritate her, do all that she could to humiliate her as the no-good wife who couldn't have any children. And year after year, Hananiah would do this relentlessly without letting up every time they went to the tabernacle. You can imagine Hannah traveling, knowing, here we go again. The bully's going to come after me. Now, this, of course, was incredibly difficult for Hannah. It wore her down. It's interesting that she didn't fight back. She didn't retaliate. And even though she knew that her husband loved her, even though she knew she was going to get that double portion as a sign of his devotion... Even though, as we'll find out, she's a faithful woman who looks to Yahweh, she was overcome with sadness. Why? Because Hannah felt like a failure. She knew that she was being teased because she had had no children, and so that made her feel useless. She felt like she had let down her husband, let down her parents, let down her family, and she believed the taunts. I think she believed the taunts that she was nothing that her womb was closed, and so that meant she was good for nothing. And, and one year, the year we read about it, it was so bad for Hannah, she's simply weeping. She can't even go into the festival. She's weeping. She can't even eat. Now, her husband in verse 8 tries to comfort her, and I don't know whether it was valiant or whether it was lame, but i got to give him a little credit for at least trying, right? And he goes up to his weeping wife, and he says, Hannah, don't cry, my love. Why won't you eat? Don't be overcome with grief. Don't be overcome with sadness because you can't have children. It's okay. After all, aren't I worth more to you than ten sons? And all the moms in the house said, no, <laughs> no, Elkanah, nice try, but, but the yearning of her heart is for children. That's her calling to be a mother, and it's not enough. She cannot be comforted so easily. And again, I, I give him credit for trying. We should try. Sometimes we don't have the right words. You may not say the right thing, but, but let me tell you this. It is always better to go to someone in need. It's always better to, to go to someone who's weeping, to offer a hug, a prayer, a word of encouragement. Whether or not it's exactly what they need, at least you've communicated with them. I see you. I know you. I'm concerned about you. But she has this deep, deep pain that cannot be easily comforted. Hannah badly wants to be a mother. Not all women are mothers. Not all women may be called to motherhood, but she is, and she's experiencing deep pain, this sense of loss and sadness and grief. She's grieving what she does not have. And in the culture of the day, it would have been expected for a godly wife to produce not just children, but lots of children, children that would build up the family name, children that would work in the family trade and keep the, the farm or the shop going. Children that would increase the family's influence in society. Children that many assumed was a display of God's blessing. Children who would serve as heirs to carry the family lineage after they were gone. But Hannah can't do any of that, and it's literally crushing her soul. Crushing her soul, and she has this deep, deep pain. And I don't have to describe it or unpack it because some of you, as you hear the scenario, you read this language, you're immediately identifying. Maybe you can't put words to it, but you know the pain in your heart. And you've wept like Hannah wept. You've sat outside while everybody else rejoiced. Maybe for you, you found yourself unable to meet others' expectations. And maybe it's the longing of your heart, but maybe it's the expectations of others, people you look up to, parents or friends or family or spouses that expect something of you that you have not been able to give. And maybe it's the longing of your heart to give it, but those expectations haven't been met, and now you sit in pain. 
Maybe you personally have hopes, have desires. Maybe you remember from a young age longing and desiring, whether it's marriage or children or a career or travel or or ministry for the kingdom of God. And you've said, I haven't fulfilled it. Those hopes, those desires are unfulfilled, and, and I have this emptiness inside of you. Maybe you have suffered the kind of belittlement, the kind of taunting that others have. And despite the fact that anti-bullying campaigns, praise God, are commonplace in schools nowadays, it still happens. Online, in the locker rooms, on the sidelines, in your neighborhoods, in the break rooms, in your communities. And yes, many of us have faced taunting or belittling from others. And you may say, oh, it doesn't bother me. But what happens when you're lying awake at night and you hear those voices, maybe even voices from those you deeply love? Some of us have been, some of us have been hurt deeply, have had deep pain by those that were intended to build us up and protect us. Maybe a spouse, maybe a mother or a father that has belittled you or taunted you. Maybe you have grief at what you don't have. Maybe it was something that you once had that was taken from you, a loved one, an opportunity, a job, a ministry that has been taken away. Or maybe it's something that you've never achieved, and yet there's grieving there at what you cannot have. Friends, listen, pain in this life is real, and the Bible is real about it. And I think that we have to, if we're going to find ourselves In a place of any kind of peace, any kind of hope, we have to acknowledge it. You have to acknowledge this morning where your places of pain are. I I would encourage you to talk about it. Simply speaking your pain to a friend, a mentor, a pastor, an elder, a Bible study leader, a spouse, a friend. Simply speaking about it can bring such relief to bring to the surface what maybe nobody even knows you're grieving. Too many of us ignore it or we push down our pain, or we put on a smile until nobody else is around, and then we take a drink and then a second or a third, or or we spend too much time online, or we look to the pleasures of this world thinking maybe our pain will be numbed, maybe we'll forget about it, maybe we'll distract ourselves from worldly pleasure, maybe if we succeed enough in our career, or maybe if we just have a second, third, fourth child, then the grief that we haven't been able to speak about, about the child we lost, maybe, maybe then it'll go away. But can we acknowledge it? Can we talk about it? Or are we going to just try to cover it up? Some try to cover it up with the pursuit of good things, the pursuit of good and godly things. But those things will never, never heal, never bring peace for the pain and the grief until we take it to the Lord. That's what we're going to read that Hannah does. See, listen, God is not afraid of your pain. He's not afraid of your questions. He's not afraid of your anguish or your weeping. He's not afraid of your, your anger, your frustration, your grief. You can take it all to him. And that's what we read about beginning in verse 9. We read Hannah's desperate plea. Pick back up with me in the word of God. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. 
And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have neither drunk wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered her, Go in peace, and God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. You see the picture, everyone's in Shiloh, worshiping, gathering with their family, sharing stories, laughing, offering up sacrifices to the Lord, and Hannah can't take it any longer. She goes outside to sit by herself. Eli, the priest, is sitting over by the door of the temple. She doesn't even seem to notice him. In verse 10, we read that she's deeply distressed. She's feeling overwhelmed by her disappointment, by the emotional pain of her childlessness, of the taunting, uh, feeling ostracized, feeling unable to live out her calling. And yet, in the midst of that, she has strength. In the midst of that, she has faith. And she, she's able to turn to the Lord. She's able to cry out to him in prayer. Not ignoring her pain, but bringing her pain to God. And she prays in verse 11 what I think is a raw, honest prayer. She's expressing deep faith and reliance on God. And she makes a vow to him. She calls him Lord of hosts. That's the idea of, of God as the Lord of the armies of heaven. And she says, God of heaven, if you will look down on me with favor, your servant, if you will remember me, if you will not forget me in my affliction, but if you will answer my prayer for a son, then God, I promise I will dedicate him in service to you for his entire life. She says, as a sign of my pledge, I'll never cut his hair. And that was a, a cultural expression, something we read about other places in the Old Testament, to remind her and her son, that, that if she would have a son, his life would be given to the Lord. He would be dedicated in service to God Almighty. And so she's praying, and she's praying all of this in her heart, but she's moving her lips, we read, but she's not making sounds, right? You ever do this when you pray? You're not actually talking, but you're kind of just mumbling under your breath, and you're, 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 you're speaking, but without words coming out. I pray like this sometimes. It made me think of a story about how uh, after 9-11, uh, in the public schools in southern York County, they began to have a moment of silence a after the morning announcements. And, and so I said to my son, when he was like kindergarten or first grade or whatever it was, I said, oh, they're, they're giving you a moment of silence. That's an opportunity for, your, for you to pray. And he said, no, Dad, it's a moment of silence. I said, I know. But while you're being quiet, you can pray. We can pray for, for people that at that point were still digging through rubble. We can pray for families that have lost loved ones. We can pray that justice would be done. He said, Dad, I can't pray. It's a moment of silence. I'm going to get in trouble. And it was at that point that I realized, oh, he thinks prayer is always talking out loud. And so I had to explain to him, no, you can pray in your heart silently <laughs> during the moment of silence. God will still hear you, right? Because with our kids sometimes we only pray audibly. Well, the priest Eli sees Hannah and he thinks, what in the world is she doing? Because culturally they would typically pray out loud. And he assumes, falsely assumes, well, she must be drunk. Now, it was, a, it was a false assumption. He, he was adding insult to injury, in a sense, assuming that this crying, distraught woman is, is drunk. And, and it really was a sad state of affair in Israel that the priest at the temple, that was his first assumption. And we're going to read more later next week how there was great disorder at the temple. Eli's very own sons were not good men. They had allowed things to run amok. 
They had just had a big feast where a lot of people probably were eating and drinking too much. And so he unfairly misjudges her. And in verse 15 and 16, again, godly woman, she just calmly explains, calmly explains herself, no, no, my Lord, I'm not drunk. I'm simply troubled in spirit. I have a broken heart. And she says, did you read that? I've been pouring out my soul to the Lord. Man, underline, highlight, write that down. Pouring out my soul to the Lord. And she says, don't look at me like a worthless woman. I've been crying out to God. She says, out of my deep anguish and and vexation, which is not a word we use a lot. It means she's irritated. Her soul is is in an irritable state. And she's in deep anguish. Eli is convinced, and so in verse 17, he sees her sincere faith. He, he now does a 180. Instead of thinking she's drunk, he says, he says, Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant all that you have been praying to him. Because he can now tell that that woman was, was, was really getting her business done before the Lord. Crying out, pouring out her soul to God. And so he blesses her. Hannah responds with faith in verse 18. I am, I am your servant. May May I find favor in your eyes. And with that, in that moment, something is, has been unhinged, open, awakened in her heart. And she is changed. Her burden is lifted. Her heart finds peace. She gets up. She goes in. She can eat again. And her face changes. Her demeanor is lifted. She's no longer overcome with sadness. Because in the moment of her desperate plea, God met her. And she found relief. She found the peace of God. Because she turned to the Lord in her deep pain and, and offers this desperate plea. Again, that, that's, that's our call, our urging this morning. In the midst of your deep distress. And some of you are like, I don't even have deep distress. Life is good right now. I just get really, really irritated all the time. O- okay, well, well, your daily irritation may be for you your deep stress. Or it may be an, an obstacle of temptation. Or, or it may be battling, as we've read about Hannah, grief or loss battling those that are opposing you. Maybe your deep distress is just apathy, and you just say, I just really don't care. I I just go through the motions, and I smile when people smile, and when my spouse says I love you, I say I love you back, but I'm I'm broken and empty inside. maybe, Maybe your deep distress is apathy. Maybe your deep distress is unfulfilled expectations that the Lord has for you. All the things we've been talking about this morning. I hope and pray that the Holy Spirit is stirring in you Your areas of need. But where do you turn when you're overcome by anxiety or anguish or irritation or fear or apathy? Where do you turn? Where do you look to for comfort when your spirit is troubled? Where do you look for for comfort when you have a broken heart? I believe we look to the Lord in faith like Hannah did. As verse 15 says, our call is to take our troubled spirit to God and pour out our soul to the Lord. Imagine a, a pitcher of, of sweet, fresh, homemade lemonade, right? And you pick that pitcher up, and, and sometimes we, we splash a little out, or we take out a little tablespoon, we pour a little cup. But no, no, this says you give it all to God. You pour out every drop, every drip of your soul. You dump it out before the Lord, and you say, God, this is who I am. I know you already see me, and you already know me, but I am now pouring out my soul to you, giving you my deepest desires, my, my deepest pain, the longings of my heart, my hopes, my dreams, the good and the bad. We pour it out before the Lord. 
Can we, as verse 16 says, speak to God about our deep distress? Listen, he does not want your smile. He wants your real heart. And if it's a smile, if it's joy, give it to him. If it's deep sadness and weeping and pain, give it to him. If it's great anxiety, if it's vexation and irritation, you say, but I, I, can't, I can't be irritated to God. Yes, you can. You say, but I'm angry. I can't, I can't be angry with God. Yes, you can. You say, but I'm hopeless. I can't, I can't turn to God hopeless. Yes, you can. He knows it. He sees it. He hears it. He understands it. All you have to do is read through the Psalms, read through the prophets. You hear godly men and women of old crying out to God as Hannah did. I couldn't help but think of how Hannah's posture foreshadows our Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus pleading with God in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is about to face all the things that Hannah already had faced. Jesus knows it's coming that night before his death. He knows that he's about to be betrayed by one of his closest friends, that he will soon be arrested, falsely accused. He'll be mocked, beaten, hung to die on a cross. And we read in the gospel that his soul is full of sorrow, that our Lord Jesus was deeply troubled. And what does he do? He falls down on his face before God. He's sweating blood. He's weeping. He's begging God, God, if there's any other way, please let this cup of judgment pass from me. He was real with God. Je listen, Jesus really wanted to find another way. He was really begging God, I don't want to have to go through this. He wasn't putting on a face. He wasn't pretending. He wasn't smiling. He wasn't going to God with a, with a false hope or a false optimism. And then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. See, the, the place of, of desperate plea made from true faith may begin with anger or irritation or hopelessness, or restlessness, or anxiety. But as you find yourself on the face before God, through the Spirit of Jesus, you find the strength to say, Lord, but not my will, yours be done. And if my hopes and if my dreams are never fulfilled, and if this pain continues, you are still God and I am not. You are still Father and I am still child. You are still King and I am still subject. Can we look to the Lord in faith as Hannah did, as the Lord did, pouring out, our soul. Some of you have wrestled with childlessness. Some of you have lost spouses, have lost children, born and, un and, and unborn. Some of you have wrestled, as Hannah did, with the pain of infertility. And I was thinking about this, and I don't mean to make light of, of those that have, have wrestled with genuine, lifelong infertility, but, but my wife and I we had Simon, uh, suffice it to say, PG version, the first time we tried, right? And so we were like, this is great. We can just make babies whenever we want. And I had always thought, as a young man, I would like to have a baseball team, right? If you could field a baseball team, like, what a blessing. So I thought that's how many kids we would have. My wife came from a family of four. I came from a family of three. We eventually settled on three or four. And at, when Simon was about a year and a half old, we decided, well, let's, let's make another baby. And it didn't happen. And then it didn't happen again. And then it didn't happen again. And, and, and 12 months, a year went by where we were unable to have a second child. Now, I know for some of you that seems small, but I'm sharing my own, my own pain. Because I remember in that season thinking, our first son must have been a miracle. Like, you, you hear those things, right? Like, this is it. We're done. We can't have any more kids. Uh, I, the, the hopes that I had for a big family, for siblings, for lots of children and grandchildren, it's it. God somehow must have just given us a miracle, a miracle baby. We're not going to have any more kids. We, we went to doctor's appointments. We started praying. We started asking people to pray. We got testing and evaluation, right? Like you, your, your mind, and, and I'm a young man, and I don't understand 
some of what I do now in terms of life's ups and downs. But I remember that anguish. I remember having to wrestle with the Lord and say, okay, God, if this is it, then, then this is it. And, and if you're not going to give us any more children. And I remember the frustration. I remember, you know, my, my wife's panic. And, and you go around the cycle of, of whose fault is it and why is this happening? What, what's the Lord doing? And I remember, I remember nights of praying before God, maybe not with the same level of desperation and intensity that Hannah had or that some of you have had. But whatever your pain is, Whatever you know that it's like to be without, to have lost, take that to the Lord in a desperate plea, not just as Hannah did, but as the Lord Jesus did. Because listen, that night when Jesus was on his knees in the garden before his death, through his sacrifice that we just partook of this morning at the table, now he opens up the way to God. Amen? Because of his sacrifice, because he faced the deepest pain imaginable and walked through it in faith, now you and I can cry out to God as sons and as daughters. Now you and I can cry out to God with our desperate plea and know that that the Lord in heaven hears, remembers, knows, draws close. And so put your trust in Christ this morning in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your grief, in the midst of your faith and your lack of faith. Put your faith in Christ, your belief in him who walked to the cross, who, who suffered not only physical pain and death, but, but suffered the Lord's judgment, suffered sin, and hell itself on that cross, that you and I could now look God in the eyes and say, this is what I need, Father. This is who I am, Father. I pour out my soul before you. And Hannah's story that begins with, with such desperation, it ends with joy, but it's, it's difficult joy. It's joy, but it's joy that came from a hard choice. Look at verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for the Lord, I have asked for him from the Lord. They get up early, they worship together, they head home. Elkanah knew his wife, which means, yes, they had intercourse. And in that moment, something profound happened. This woman who felt forgotten, who felt left out, who felt ostracized, now the Lord remembers her. I believe God had always seen her, had always had a plan for her all along, but she had felt forgotten. But now in that moment, she knows she's remembered. Because after years of heartbreak, after years of being taunted, after this profound moment of broken, brokenness and spiritual renewal at the temple, the Lord makes it evident to Hannah. Hannah, I see you, I know you, I remember you. And so Hannah conceives in due time. She realizes she's pregnant, and she gives birth to a son. In verse 20, she calls him Samuel. El meaning God, the name of God. She's like, I'm going to name him after the Lord because the Lord has given him to me as a gift. See, the Lord remembered her plea. And so she said, I'm going to remind myself and my son that he's come from God, that he will be devoted to God. And and the very name of Samuel the prophet is a lifelong reminder of the powerful circumstances of his birth. His origin story is an answer to God's prayer, a demonstration of divine intervention, a demonstration of his calling as a child of God. And so in verse 20 we read that the man Elkanah And all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, 
For she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. So initially... Hannah's not ready to go back to the tabernacle. She's not ready to face Eli. She says to her husband, can I have more time? Can we wait until he's weaned? And so she doesn't go the first year, probably for a couple of years. We don't know how old Samuel was. I'm guessing maybe about three, maybe older. Because she knows that once Samuel goes to the tabernacle, he will be in service to the Lord, not just his whole life, but she says forever. And so Elkanah supports his wife and says, yes, stay, stay home until you're ready. And so she goes, takes the necessary sacrifices to the house of the Lord, and once the sacrifices are made, she appears before the priest Eli, and she proclaims in verse 26 to 28, Oh, Eli, my Lord, as surely as you live, I'm here. I'm the one who was weeping, who was praying all those years ago. Remember the woman that you thought was drunk, but I was really just like having a moment with God? I'm back, and God has answered my prayer. And this is the son that I prayed for. This is the son that you blessed me to have. And since the Lord has given me the deepest desire of my heart. She says, I now give him back to you. I now give you Samuel to the Lord for service as long as he lives. And so Samuel stays at the tabernacle, leaves his normal life in Ramah behind with his mother, with his father, stays at the temple, dedicates his life to God and worship. We'll read next week in chapter two that Hannah is rejoicing. Her, her kingdom perspective, her heart for God leads her to rejoice at what God has done. And we'll read her song next week. Now, now, what exactly is happening? What is Hannah doing dedicating him to the temple? Is she abandoning him? Is she giving him up for adoption? Well, as we read on in chapter 2, I think the best way for our modern minds to understand this is like a boarding school situation. Okay? Samuel lived at the temple with the priest. He was raised as an apprentice. He learned to obey God, to walk with God, to hear the voice of God, to serve God. Hannah, we find out in chapter 2, would regularly come and visit him and bring him gifts and make him clothes. For Hannah's part, she goes on to... To be blessed, she has five more children, we're told, three sons and two daughters. And this moment of faithful dedication is a moment for Hannah, a moment for Samuel, a moment for the, the kingdom of Israel, and a moment as part of God's plan, her faithful dedication. In the midst of her deep grief, she's able to act with powerful faith. With powerful faith. See, listen, for those of you that know deep pain and grief, that does not have to inhibit your faith. Deep pain and grief can actually be the environment for powerful faith to grow. See, listen, Hannah had spent the early years of her life and marriage without. She was a woman without, without a son, without a hope, without favor. 
But God saw her, God heard her, God remembered her, and so God filled her and blessed her and gave Hannah her heart's desire, gave her the gift that she most longed for, a son. But rather than Hannah take that son and use it for her own purposes, for her own good, rather than take the son that God had given her and say, well, now this gift is going to be my God, right? She could have idolized her son. She takes what God had given her and she gives it back gives it back to God. She dedicated the most precious possession in her entire life. She dedicated her own son back to God for his purposes. And listen, because of Hannah's faithful dedication and obedience, Samuel grows to become the linchpin of the entire nation of Israel. He becomes this faithful prophet speaking for God, this righteous judge leading the people, this courageous kingmaker to anoint the first kings of Israel. And Samuel was not the Messiah. He was not even a king. He was the forerunner. He, he was a John the Baptist type figure, right? Used by God to pave the way, to prepare the people, to announce the coming of who the king would be. But without Samuel, none of that happens. Without Hannah's obedience and faithful dedication. And so we see the rise of the king through the miraculous work and the rise of the prophet Samuel. And as we've said, King Saul, King David, King Solomon, Jeroboam, all the kings after, none of them ultimately fulfill what Hannah needed, what Samuel proclaimed. It wasn't until King Jesus would come, the one whom, whom John the Baptist himself would announce as the coming king. Jesus was that king. And through Christ, we now know for certain, listen, God remembers us. See, because the anointed one has come, because Christ has come to fulfill this prophecy and this longing, we now know that God remembers us. God has not forgotten you in your pain. He has heard your plea that now through faith in Christ, you are delivered out of darkness. You are brought into a kingdom of light. And now he calls you to dedicate yourself to the Lord and all the love that your heavenly father has given you in Christ, all that you long for, all that God has healed in your heart all that has been restored, all the ways that you have been blessed in abundance, he now says, take that and dedicate it back to me for a life of service and worship. And so like, like Samuel living at the temple, we dedicate our lives to Christ. We give all that we have to him. That means all the gifts that you have, all the training that you have, your finances, your time, yes, even your children. Please do not bring your children to the church office this week. Matt and I do not want to raise your kids. But you dedicate even your children. Say, God, they belong to you. I offer them to you for a life of service. And whatever that may be, and some of you have your hearts broken as your children marry and grow up and move away. Some move on to the mission field. Some move to other, other places. Some move on into ministry. And you watch them go and you say, God, for your purposes, for your glory. What is the greatest gift that God's given you? What is the longing of your heart that the Lord has given you? I thought about my own mom and, and dad, Andy and Sandy. Had a, had, a, had a house in Cockeysville, had a shore house, sold them both after we graduated, bought what is their dream home on the Gunpowder River outside of Baltimore. And do and you know what my parents do as often as possible? They, they give that beautiful home up to the Lord for worship. We had our elders retreat there. This year, they've had missionaries stay there, family and friends stay there. They, 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 they host uh, Young Life leadership trainings. They host uh, church youth groups. They fill up their calendar as much as possible with other people to come and use as a gift to God. This house that God has given them, they've given back to the Lord. 
I, I don't know why, Joseph, I thought about Joseph Perkins. A, a young, strong athlete playing football at Shippensburg. God gets a hold of his heart. And you know what God says? God, what Joseph says to the Lord, he, he takes this gift of football, his athleticism, his power, his strength, his success, and he gives it back to the Lord. And he says, God, I, I think you're calling me to walk away from football. And he, he stopped playing to devote himself to his family and to God's kingdom. I thought about uh, friends I know from years and years ago, Pete and, and, and Laura Kuba. Man, they, 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 they followed the FPU steps. And they saved and they put money aside in their bank account. And they sought financial stability and wealth. And they reached a point where, where they, they were financially stable and strong. And they were giving to the church. They were, they were being faithful Christians. You cut that check for 10%, right? You give it to the Lord. And you know what God said to them? I've given you this wealth. Now will you give it back to me? And God began to put on their heart a desire to say, we don't want to give away 10% and live on 90%. We want to give away 90% and live on 10%. And they began to change their living standard of living so that they could give away to the Lord. How, how many of you, the most precious gift that you have is your vacation time? And you look forward to that two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, whatever it is. I, I thought about Jared and Lindy Ness and many of the other families this summer that took that vacation time. For the Nesses, that, that one week is an opportunity for, to stay at home, to have family time. You know what they did with it? They gave that vacation. They gave that week to the Lord and said, we're going to go up to York and serve families in need and repair a trailer for a woman who can't do it herself. Give whatever the Lord's greatest gift is to you. Maybe for you, it's your career. I thought about George Rebstad. He's a manager at his company. And, and I, I, George, George is a high-capacity leader. And, and, and he's, he he's manages a, a great team. But you know what George does with that team? And I don't know whether it's furthered his career or held back his team. But if you talk to George, you're like, George, you're like pastoring those people. You're shepherding those people, right? You're not cutthroat. You're not trying to see your bottom line. You're not trying to see if you can increase your sales beyond the other guy in your region. He's caring for those men and women on his team. He's taking his career and saying, God, it's yours. And, and I want to honor you in this context. Take the greatest gifts that God has given you and dedicate them back to the Lord. Maybe some of them you never see again. Maybe some of them you see every day, but now you do them with renewed purpose, renewed vision, with a kingdom-minded focus that all that you have is dedicated to the Lord. Amen? I invite the worship team to come back up as we close out this morning with a couple of songs. I just call us in faith to dedicate ourselves to the Lord. You're all going to dedicate yourself to something. You're all going to be controlled by someone. But listen to what God's Word said in 2 Corinthians 5. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Friends, God has given his all to you, his one and only son. And he says, no longer live for yourself, but now live for the one who died for you. Let's stand together as we worship, as we dedicate ourselves, as we ask for faith. And so, God, we pray now that even as we sing, that these lyrics and these songs would lead us to pour out our souls to you. Lord, those of us that are in places of distress and pain and anxiety, may we kneel before you, may we weep before you, may we pour out ourselves to you. And, Lord, would you fill us with faith. Fill us with faith, with courage, with strength to take what you've given us and give it back, to dedicate our very lives, all that we have, back to you because you're a worthy God. You're a faithful God. You're a loving God. Hear us, Father.
Thank you for your grace.